Well, good morning, church. Good morning. Hey, can we give the worship team one more round of applause? I, um, I took uh, piano lessons when I was, I forgot how old I was. It was late middle school for me, right before high school. But n- nowhere in that time frame did I ever think I could do what we just experienced Hung Jung do over here. Um, so that was, it, it's been an incredible time of worship this morning. And if we haven't had the chance to meet, my name is Bryce Holdman. I serve here as our pastoral intern. I want to welcome you again to Mount Horeb, whether you're physically joining us in person or virtually tuning in online. We are grateful that you've decided to join us today. Now, we just ended a holiday that often gets skipped over due to how close it is to Christmas, and that is Thanksgiving. And I don't know about you, but we spent some time with our extended family. Uh, COVID safe, of course. We're outside on a porch that my grandparents have. And so we were spending time with them a few days ago on Thanksgiving. I ate way too much food, as I'm sure many of you did as well. But um, during that time, I was, I was thinking to myself about Sunday mornings. And obviously this Sunday morning, because I was preaching, I was thinking about the message. But every Sunday morning, we get the chance to do what we just did this morning, and that's praise God, worship God. And what we're essentially saying to God through all of that is, thank you. Thank you for saving me when I didn't deserve it. Thank you for taking my sins away when I don't deserve that every day. Thank you for the people you've put in my life. Thank you, thank you, thank you. The list is huge for the things that we're thankful for. And Thanksgiving is a time that, like I said, we often breeze past it because of how close it is to Christmas time, but I want us to take today, even during this message, to just really ponder for a few moments how thankful we truly are to be in the house of God, whether physically or virtually, to be worshiping God freely without any sort of persecution around us. It's a a true blessing. And so this morning, I believe that God has given me a message that I hope all of us will not just take, but will ultimately be thankful for. We'll be thankful for the opportunity to receive it, myself included. We'll be thankful for the opportunity to receive it among people that we love, our brothers and sisters in Christ. But the truth is, now that Thanksgiving has come, and Thanksgiving is gone, as the bumper video just showed, we are kicking off a brand new series today as we begin our time of Advent, our season of Advent here at church, and as we look ahead to my favorite holiday of the year, that is Christmas. Now, there's going to be some pictures on the screen, because if you're anything like me and my family, you've got some Christmas traditions that you, uh, regardless of COVID or not, never let pass you by. This is the first one. This is a picture of our family, just the four of us, um, and we had just finished decorating the Christmas tree. This was taken last year. Um, I, I was trying to figure out first service why my dad was smiling the way that he's smiling, but it is, it's an interesting smile he's got. But anyway, this was our uh, picture we took last year after we finished decorating. The next picture followed this picture, and this was the same day, every evening after we finished decorating, usually the day after Thanksgiving or the weekend after Thanksgiving, we will sit down drinking hot chocolate or hot apple cider. I think we had hot chocolate at this point. And we will watch the greatest Christmas movie ever created. It's called Elf. Thank you. Amen. Um, If you disagree, please listen to my sermon. I promise God has something to say to you today. Um, But Elf is what we watch. We watch it every year. Um, My my mom actually told me yesterday, I think it was, that the Fireflies, Columbia Fireflies, are doing some sort of showing of the Elf in their stadium in Columbia, so we may have to check that out as well this year. But nonetheless, those are some of, not all of, but some of our Christmas traditions. But if I can be fully transparent, just for a second, right up front. The favorite, my favorite thing at least, that we do around Christmas time is not something necessarily that we do, but it's something that my mom initiates, and it is the amazing, absolutely magnificent cinnamon rolls that she makes. 
Now, she only makes them around Christmas time. She was here in the first service. And I told the entire congregation that I've gone to her on multiple different occasions. And I have said, Mom, for instance, it's my birthday coming up. I'm turning 21. This was two years ago. Can you make the cinnamon rolls? And she laughed and said, no, sorry. It's my secret recipe that I only bring out at Christmas time. There have been many occasions like that that I could spend the next 10 minutes talking about. But nonetheless, I'm expectant that we're going to get cinnamon rolls every single Christmas morning. Now, she makes an entire breakfast to go with it. She makes some quiche, some eggs, some bacon, orange juice to drink. We have some extended family over. It's a great time. But my eyes are locked the entire time on those cinnamon rolls. And I know that they're going to come last. So we're going to eat the breakfast and then we're going to eat it. But before we eat the breakfast, I started to realize a few years ago that we had the same trend every year. We'd wake up in the morning. My brother and I would open presents by the tree that Santa Claus brought us. And then we would go eat breakfast and then we would enjoy the cinnamon rolls. And so I kid you not, I started setting world records with how fast I opened those Christmas presents. I mean, I was flying. My parents told me to slow down. They asked me why I was going so fast. And all I could do was point to the cinnamon rolls because I was excited to enjoy what was coming my way soon. So that's my favorite thing that we do. But the truth is, even if it's not cinnamon rolls for you, chances are you or someone in your family have these amazing special foods, maybe secret recipes, that you whip out every year, maybe around Thanksgiving, maybe around Christmas time, maybe around New Year's. But you know, every year around this individual time, I am bringing out my secret recipe for the food that my family and I love. And this morning, I believe that God wants to give us a certain recipe for something that you can't find in a cookbook, no matter where you look. You can't find it anywhere online. And believe it or not, it can't even be found on the Food Network on TV. You see, many of us in this room have gone to great lengths to try to find what this recipe creates. And we've been willing to pay great costs, but we've come up empty because we've been searching in all the wrong places for it. So if you'll allow him to, I believe that for the next few moments, God wants to give you and I the recipe for rest. The recipe for rest. If you're taking notes, that's the title of my message, the recipe for rest. Now, there's a lot of different types of rest that I could be talking about, so I'd love to define the rest that we're talking about this morning. This is a very simple way that I've come across to define it. Being with God, knowing that he's fully in control. Being with God, as close to God as possible, knowing that he is fully in control. And you see, I believe that the family of God, the home that Jesus intends to invite you and I in, even here this morning, it's full of rest for our souls, like we just defined It's one where regardless of the burdens that we bring in, we know we can walk out victoriously because we know that we don't have to carry them alone. And today I believe that the recipe for rest that you and I have been desiring in this season, maybe in this year so far, it's a very simple one. Very, very simple one. Straight from the word of God that we're about to jump into together. So I'd invite you to join me in prayer. I'd love to open us in prayer, inviting God to invade the parts of us that are weary so that he may grant us rest. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that it is to share the only truth that we could possibly find in this world from your word. God, I pray for the hearts of those that will receive it. Lord, if I'm reading your word right, it tells me that it doesn't return void when it's preached with sincerity and humility. And God, I pray that you would give me that now. I invite you to invade the parts of me that are weary, the burdens I've been holding on to for too long. I pray that I would give those over to you. I pray the same for my brothers and sisters that will be receiving this message as well in person or online. I pray that we'd be obedient to receive everything you want us to hear this morning and act upon it accordingly. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as I said, the recipe for rest, it's a very simple one, believe it or not. 
It includes three individual ingredients, if you will, straight from the word of God that I want to give you. So if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn with me to Isaiah in the Old Testament, chapter 9. We're going to look at one verse in Isaiah chapter 9. The words are going to be on the screen if you'd like to read it that way. We're going to be hopping around to three different passages this morning, one of which is in Isaiah. The, the other two are in Matthew, and Matthew 2 is where we'll be camping out in just a few moments. But Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, it is Isaiah the prophet speaking here in this one verse, and here is what he has to say. He says, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. Now, this may be a familiar verse to you. Many scholars attribute Isaiah to prophesying very clearly here about Jesus to come in the New Testament. And what Isaiah seems to do first is simply define where people are. You see, he says that people are walking in darkness. People are walking in darkness. People are living in darkness. And frankly, I don't think too much has changed between when Isaiah first wrote this and 2020. Because if you're looking at the world like I look at, what, like, like I look at the world, you can look to your right. You can look to your left. And you can see a lot of people that are walking in darkness. They've got blinders on and they can't see the truth for what it is. You see darkness everywhere you turn, and often you'll find yourself scratching your head trying to figure out where all this darkness originated from, why it's all around us. And a few weeks ago, I got the privilege in this room on Friday morning at our men's prayer gathering to share with the men for a few moments, um, and I picked Psalm 119, 105. That's one verse in Psalm 119. And it's a very well-known verse, and here's what it has to say. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. And before I talked about this to the men, I pondered this verse for a while. I was talking to my former roommate about it a little bit. And here's what I came across. The reason that we need a lamp to guide our feet and a light to guide our path is because, as we just said, the world around us is dark. That's very clear to see. The world around us is dark. And if I'm reading this book called The Bible Right, Jesus actually says that the path that he wants us to walk as believers, as followers of Christ, is a narrow one. And so let me get this straight, God. You're telling me that I'm living in a dark world and you're calling me to walk a narrow path. So that must mean the only way I could do that somewhat successfully is if I have a light to guide my every step. And so Isaiah once again brings up this key concept of a light when he's talking in verse 2, chapter 9. It's almost as if God is, is promising his people here in advance. Hey, I know you look around you and all you see is darkness. Everywhere you turn, it's just darkness. There's people walking in it. There's people living in it. You don't know how you'll ever escape it. But I'm promising you, if you will believe me for a moment, I will give you a great light. I'm going to call a great light to, to come be with you to shine in the middle of that darkness if you'll trust me. It'll illuminate the darkness. He'll be born as a baby boy in a manger, which we'll get to in a moment. He'll live a sinless, perfect life, and then he'll die for my sins and your sins. It's a great light. But amidst everything that Isaiah prophesies about, amidst everything that God promises through Isaiah's prophecy, this one key thing popped into my mind, that God doesn't promise to take away the darkness right now. Instead, he promises to give us a light in the middle of it. He's not promising to take away the darkness. He's not promising to take away the virus, to take away the pain, to take away the suffering, to take away the frustration. No, no, no. He's promising to give you a light in the middle of it. He's promising Daniel's three friends elsewhere in the Old Testament that he's willing to meet them in the middle of the fire they're in. 
And I believe that that's the exact same promise he's making to us today. Not just all the way back in Isaiah through Isaiah, but even here today in 2020. I'm not promising you right now that I'm going to take away the darkness. But I promise you I've actually already provided a light in the middle. And church, I fear that if we're honest with one another for a second, some of us have been praying prayers, asking God to take away the darkness. And in doing so, when we feel like we've come up empty on the other side of praying those prayers, because God hasn't necessarily taken away the darkness, that's when we give up on trying to find the rest for our souls, the peace that we want to find in this world. We're tempted to give up and walk the other direction because, God, I, I thought I asked you to take away the darkness, but I still look around and it's still here. When in reality, God's trying to direct our focus to the light, to locate the light. If you're taking notes, that's my first point. The first ingredient is we have to locate the light. But you see, locating the light isn't enough on its own unless you learn to focus on it. And there's this story that I want us to spend a few moments in from Matthew chapter 2. You can turn there with me if, if, if you like. It's in the New Testament. Matthew chapter 2. There's a story of the wise men, or the magi as they're often referred to as well, that's very often read around Christmas time, Advent season. And these men come to Jerusalem from eastern lands, as we're told, distant lands. And here's what the Bible says. This is so profound, so please don't miss this. This is starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. The words will be on the screen. Just two verses here. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. They're going around asking people, where is the newborn king of the Jews? But they're not Israelites. They're not Jews themselves. In fact, they're, they're coming from a distant, distant, distant land because they saw a star, and they're believing a promise. And scholars actually believe that these magi, these wise men, were the first people recorded in the New Testament to recognize Jesus as king indeed. And you know, this week, every morning, I woke up, and I went to Matthew chapter 2, because I knew that it was going to be a part of the sermon today, and I spent some time reading, meditating, praying about it as I read it, and I kept getting stopped at this one passage, just the first two verses, couldn't get past it for some reason. And I found myself asking this question of the text every time, God, why was it so easy for the Magi, the wise men, who weren't from Israel? who didn't know the scriptures as well as most of the Israelites did, and therefore didn't know too much about this Messiah to come, why was it so easy for them to declare him as king before they had even met him? That was the question that I kept asking. And the reason I was asking it was because if you read the New Testament, it's pretty clear to see that as John 1.11 declares, he, Jesus, came to his own people, but they didn't recognize him. They didn't receive him. You see, much of Israel missed their Messiah and church, I'm convinced that they missed their Messiah because they had expectation rather than anticipation. They had expectation, but they didn't have anticipation. Let me explain what I mean. All throughout Jesus' ministry, he did incredible things. He healed numerous people that nobody could explain. He did miracles that nobody could explain. The things that he said captivated audiences. On two occasions, he fed 4,000 and 5,000 people at once. Nobody could explain it. It was incredible to watch happen. It's incredible for us to read about when it happened. But it wasn't what Israel expected. 
You see, because scholars believe that Israel, based on the prophecies made in the Old Testament, scholars believe that Israelites, Jews, actually expected Jesus to come as the Messiah, but be a militant Messiah, which in its essence means that Jesus would come to overthrow the oppression and persecution of the Roman rule, the Roman empire that was over Israel at the time when Jesus came. But he didn't do that. Instead, Jesus was the one who showed up and said, hey, if, if you've got an enemy, I'm going to call you to love that enemy. I'm actually going to take it a step further and say, pray for the people who are currently persecuting you. That's the Messiah they got. They weren't expecting him. And so they had expectation without having anticipation. And church, this season of Advent that we just started is more about anticipation, I believe, than expectation. And I wonder if we've been missing out, just maybe, on the rest that we've been desiring because we've been so convinced that we know what it will look like when it shows up in our life. We're so convinced that we know what peace is gonna look like in 2020. That's why a lot of us, if we're honest, have been so convinced that peace, rest, fill in the blank with any synonymous word, is only going to come when we find a vaccine to this virus, when in reality, what if the rest that God actually wanted to give us has been here all along through the victory that can only be found in Jesus Christ? It's a matter of our posture, but it's a matter of our perspective. Are we living in a season of expectation? Because expectations, sometimes they'll get exceeded, but oftentimes we'll be let down because they won't go as we planned. Church, I wanna challenge us to start this Advent Christmas season living in anticipation rather than expectation. You see, God's trying to get us to understand that core principle I mentioned a few moments ago. I'm not promising to take away the darkness right now in 2020, but I promise I've already provided a light in the middle of it. And you see the Magi, they they were able to locate this light without any presupposed ideas of what the light would look like when it came. And when they finally found it, the Bible tells us later in Matthew 2 that they were filled with joy because they'd found the king. They didn't know what they were looking for, but they knew it was a king, and they knew that he was worth pursuing no matter what the cost was. They'd found the person who could give them the rest they desired, the peace they desired, that could show them the love that they desired. But church, there's another part to this whole story that's often missed when we read it around Christmas time. And it's the fact that these magi were indeed from far off eastern distant lands. Yet for some reason they traveled all the way to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem they traveled all the way to Bethlehem to find a king that they didn't even know much about. And church, if we want to find rest in this season, we can't just locate where the light is. We have to also learn to define the distance. That's point number two, define the distance. Just a few short months ago in August, I found myself on a stage at CIU's chapel, walking across it, graduating with a bachelor's of science in business. And this was a degree that I worked towards for four plus years, including high school, middle school, all that. It was leading up till this point. And I remember thinking back to my freshman year when I first came into CIU, I said, okay, I want to be a business major. And the next step that I was told to take was I got a piece of paper given to me. And at the top of that piece of paper, it said degree map, degree map. And what this degree map essentially was, was showing me exactly what classes I need to take in what order, in order to graduate when I wanted to graduate. 
And so essentially all I had to do at this point was when I registered for classes, I just started registering for the classes that I was told to register in the order in which I was told to take them. But church, if you're anything like me, it's pretty easy to see that the truth is in this world, we don't have many of those in life. We don't have a life map that we can pull out of our wallet at any given moment and look at when we need direction. But if I'm reading the Bible right, I know someone who does. And our Heavenly Father has already mapped out every step He intends for us to take, step by step by step. And you see, the Magi, at some point, they had to sit down with one another, and they had to say, okay, here is where we are now in our own lands. Over here is where we want to go. We see a light that's guiding us. We want to take every step that, that, that we possibly could to get to where we want to be eventually. But the truth is, we don't really know how long the journey is going to take. We don't know what we're going to encounter along the way. We don't know what road bumps we may hit as we go. But the key is that we have a light to guide us. And we are believing that whatever we find when we get there is going to be so worth any distance that we would possibly have to travel to see him face to face. Because we're chasing, we're pursuing a king. You see, for the Magi, this was defining a physical journey. They had to try to map out a physical journey, but for us, it's a spiritual one. Because if we've, as, as we've already said this morning, rest is defined as being with God, knowing that he's fully in control. And being with God, but especially knowing that he's fully in control, means that I don't have the steering wheel to my life anymore. I don't get to call the shots anymore. Because church, if I can be truthfully honest right now, in this context... The times that I have felt farthest from God, I don't, I, I, I'm only 23 years old. I don't have a lot of experience on this earth. But the times that I've been farthest from God, I felt farthest from God, are the times that I saw the general direction he was leading me in, and then I tried to take every step on my own. I tried to say, God, thank you so much for giving me a glimpse about where you're leading me. But I think I got it from here. And so then I try to take every step I possibly can to try to figure out where God's leading me. I've seen the general direction. The Magi saw the general direction, but the key was they were so focused on the light. They really didn't have time to look at any map they could dream up or make for themselves because they were focused on the light that they knew from the start was going to guide us to where we needed to be. It's tempting for us to try to define the distance that God wants us to walk on our own. It's, it's very tempting for us to do it with our own expectation. But you see, defining the distance as it relates to rest actually has more to do with God than it does with us. Because I believe that the relationship that's meant to take place between us and our Heavenly Father in this context is what I define as a define-discover relationship. Define-discover relationship. You see, it's God's job to define. It's our job to let Him help us discover. And even in the case of the Magi in Matthew 2, I believe that that's what was taking place. They were so focused on the light guiding them that every step they took, they defined it as a discovery. They weren't trying to create it for themselves. They weren't trying to not focus on the light and just walk their own path, try to get to their end goal on their own. The only way they knew they could get there was if they followed the light that was in place to guide them. We can't just locate it. We've got to learn to follow it. We've got to allow God to define the distance that it's going to take. And if we can learn to view every step of obedience as a discovery in our life, I truly believe that that's when we will be as close to God as we've ever been before. 
and we'll know that he's fully in control. We'll experience the rest that he wants to give us. And so the Magi finally come to where Jesus is in Matthew chapter 2. And as we've already said, they were filled with joy upon seeing Jesus face to face. They were filled with joy. But I don't want us to miss how the story closes. You see, every time that I'm preparing to preach a sermon to anybody, I open my Bible to the passage that I'm going to preach on, and I pray the same prayer every time, every time, at the, very, at, at, at the very beginning of the process. I say, God, would you show me something that I've missed? Show me something that I haven't seen yet, something that applies directly to the context that we're talking about today. And I believe God did that very thing because at the end of this passage, this is how the story comes to a conclusion, starting in verse 11. The Bible says that they, the Magi, entered the house and they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then here's the key. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They opened their treasure chests and gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. The significance behind this verse is not just that we read it in Sunday school sometimes, and that other denominations of churches practice frankincense and myrrh as a very prevalent part of their Advent celebration. The significance in context to what we're talking about today is that even the Magi didn't travel to Jesus empty-handed. They were bringing something with them. Now, in their case, they were bringing something that they knew a king was worthy of getting. They were bringing gold, frankincense, myrrh, things that they were going to offer before this king, even though he was in the form of a baby. But nonetheless, they went on this journey and they had some things with them that they'd been carrying. Some things that when they finally got to their king face to face, they wanted to give to Jesus. And once they got there, I can only imagine what it must have felt like. They could finally rest. They could finally take some deep breaths knowing, man, This journey's been a long one. It's been full of ups and downs. We've had to go a long ways to get to where we are. But we trusted this light that we saw from the start. And we didn't try to do this on our own. And all along the journey, they were carrying something with them. And church, today, the truth might be for you that you're not in here right now with a treasure chest full of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But maybe, just maybe, you've come in here nonetheless carrying some things. And some of the things that you are carrying, you've been carrying for way too long, and they're, they're weighing you down day by day. They're acting as burdens upon your heart. And this morning, I believe God himself is creating a space for you to give those things over to him. Because right now, those things are acting as a separating factor between where you are and where you want to be, and finding the rest, the peace that you desire. You see, Jesus actually lays out the key to everything we've been talking about, the key to finding rest in one verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And here's what he says in that one verse. Come to me, all of you who are weary, all of you who carry heavy burdens, and I promise you I will give you rest. It's hard to get the rest that Jesus desires if you don't do one of two things. If you don't come to him, know that he's close and you don't give him the things that you've been carrying. I believe that Jesus wants to make a trade with you today. He wants to trade the things that you've been holding on to, maybe for days, maybe for months, maybe for years. And in 
in their place. He wants to give you something that only he can give you. We've just got to learn to trust the trade. Locate the light. Allow God to define the distance, but ultimately, you've got to learn to trust the trade. He's inviting you to make a trade with him for the things you've been trying to carry all on your own, the things that have become burdensome, the, the situations in your life that turned out a little bit different than you thought they would in 2020, the anger, the, the, the frustration that you still feel because this virus that we're stuck in took your loved one away a little too soon. Jesus, right now, he's saying, if you'll only come to me and you'll give me the things that you've been carrying, I'll help you carry them. And in its place, I will give you something that's irreplaceable that only I can give you. And it's the only thing that could possibly satisfy you. And you know, a little later in all four gospel accounts, there's a different type of trade that God makes with us. And it's one that he, he didn't ask us if he could make the trade. He just did it because he knew it was in our best interest. And in even from the beginning of time, I, I, I truly believe that God's desire for the people he created, you and I, in his own image, was to be as close to them as he possibly could, no matter what it took, no matter what it cost him. And you see, Genesis 3, sin acted as a separating factor between where he was and where his people are. And he knew even from that moment, there's going to come a day where I'm going to make a trade. And I'm going to get my people back. And so he did that very thing. And as we just read about in Matthew 2, he sent his son Jesus to this earth as a baby to live a perfect sinless life and then be crucified on a cross for your sins and for my sins. Not for a guarantee, but for a chance. Just a chance. He was willing to make that trade for a chance, knowing that many people would look at Jesus hanging on the cross and want nothing to do with him, and they'd walk the other way, and they would never turn back. It was for a chance that he made that trade. And because he made that trade, he's inviting us to make a trade with him right now. He's inviting us to give him the things that's been weighing us down, if we'll only trust him to give him something better. You know, it's interesting in this story too that Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Matthew chapter two, only really has one role, or at least only one role that we can read about. And the only role that Mary has is she sees the Magi standing at the door to her home and she opens the door and lets them in so that they can see what they've come for, so that they can see Jesus Christ in the flesh, face to face. And some of you here today if you're honest with yourself, it's, it might not be the Magi standing at the door to your home, but it might be Jesus standing and knocking at the door of your heart right now. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, it's the very last book in the entire Bible. Jesus says these words, look, I'm standing at the door to your heart and I'm knocking. I'm knocking. If you'll only hear my voice, if you'll hear me knocking and you open the door and you choose to let me in, I'll come in. I'll share a meal with you as friends, but it requires action on our part. It requires us to invite Jesus into our home and this Christmas, that's the question I wanna ask. As we begin our Advent season, as we begin our Christmas series, are you willing to invite Jesus Christ into your home this Christmas? For some of you, that's gonna look like inviting Jesus into your home, into your heart to carry your burdens, help you carry your burdens. The things that have been weighing you down that you've been holding on to for way too long, the sins that you 
have keep reappearing in your life that you thought you were past, but actually they're, they're still here because you haven't truly confessed them and given them over to Jesus. That's what some of you will experience if you invite Jesus into your home this Christmas. But honestly, church, I feel like some of us, maybe we've never even been close to inviting Jesus into our home, into our heart this Christmas. And so for us, maybe what that looks like is taking a step of faith and saying, Jesus, I've heard you knocking on my heart for a long time, or maybe just for the last 30 minutes. But either way, I know that I'm desperate without you. I can't search anywhere else and try to find the things that you could give me because you're the only one who holds those keys. You're the only one who can give me rest that won't fade. You're the only one who can give me peace that the world could never, ever, ever offer you. You're the only one who can give me eternity spent with you. He's the only one. And as we begin this Christmas series, as I said a few moments ago, I don't have much experience on this earth. And compared to many of you in this room and watching online, I don't even have much experience walking with Jesus yet. But here's what I do know very, very clearly. That from the moment when I first invited Jesus into my home, Jesus into my heart, there have been ups and downs throughout the entire thing. But there's never come a point when I've looked back on what I've walked through with him. And I've said, all right, God, it's too much. I think I'm done with this. Because the things that Jesus can give you, the things that God promises he will give you as soon as you invite him in are too sweet, are too great. The love that he could show you in this very moment if you've never experienced it is sweeter than anything you could ever taste in this life. And your step of faith inviting Jesus into your heart this Christmas has eternal ramifications, not just temporary ones. My hope and prayer is that as we continue this Christmas series, we wouldn't let it stop on just finding rest today. We'd be honest with God for the next few weeks. We say, God, show me the parts of my life that I haven't allowed you to invade yet. Show me the things that I've been holding on to that I desperately need help carrying. Show me the sins I've been struggling with that are holding me back from a thriving relationship with you. And I believe right now God desires to invite you, to invite him into your home and into your heart. Because once you do, you'll find the rest. You'll find what it really feels like to be close with God, knowing that he is completely and fully in control of your life. Would you pray with me? Father, I'm so grateful for the times in my life that I can look back on where you didn't have to still love me. You didn't have to love me to begin with, but I'm thankful that you did nonetheless. God, I pray for the people in this room, the people watching online right now that are on the fence about inviting you, Jesus, into their home, into their heart. I pray they would not wait another moment, God. This is the greatest decision they could ever make in their entire life, and it's got eternal ramifications. I pray they wouldn't miss this moment. Lord, when I invited you in, it was the sweetest experience I will have ever experienced in this life. I know there are many across this room and watching online that could say the same. And I pray that you would grant those rest 
those that are weary, those that have been carrying burdens all on their own, those that have been struggling with sins for months, years on end, and they can't shake themselves free from. And I pray that they take some deep breaths. They'd extend their open arms, open hands. They'd simply open the door that you're knocking on right now. They'd invite you to have a seat in their living room. They'd invite you to their dinner table this season. They'd invite you to make your home in their heart. Father, that's what it's all about. And I'm thankful that your word declares that that's what it's all about. Father, I pray that during this final time of worship, you'd stir something inside of someone, that they would make some sort of step of faith in response to what you've said today. Father, we give you all the glory. It's not about me. It's not about anybody on this stage. It's not about anybody that has any other name other than Jesus Christ. That's it. And this Christmas season, even though you came as a baby, Jesus, I'm thankful that it didn't end in the manger. And I pray that you'd remind us of how it started. And I pray you'd remind us of the meaning behind your crucifixion and your resurrection as well. That you are offering us new life and the chance to invite you into our life. Father, we give you all the honor, praise, and glory that you alone are worthy of as we continue to worship in this final time together today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.